Hi, my name is Nick Peters, investment advisor at Marlborough Group. And for this week's podcast, we're joined by Niall McDermott. He runs the Marlborough Global Bond Fund alongside his colleague, Danny Fox. Hi, Niall. Hi, Nick. Usually we start with a pretty straightforward question. Perhaps just take us through the philosophy of the fund and the approach, please. Essentially, what we're offering is a conservative and highly diversified global bond exposure for fund selectors. So if you cast your minds back over the last decade or so following the financial crisis up until COVID, this period's actually been a bit of an anomaly where rates have all moved together lower for the last 35 years or so with cheap money and basically economies needing to be supported. So the aftermath of the COVID pandemic changed this. Economies basically were impacted differently with various policy measures, and in turn, they all opened at different speeds. Ultimately, this caused divergences to appear between economies. Bond funds have three return levers, basically. So you have your interest rate sensitivity, currency exposure, and credit exposure. With diverging economies, it's important that investors are able to consider all three of those return drivers, both for returns, but also for diversification. So basically, you want to consider the full opportunity set and the natural choice we feel to do this is in the global bond area. So fund selectors essentially have two choices, blend together funds at ETFs or allocate to a core global bond fund. Now, there are actually issues with both of these approaches. So blending actually becomes a full-time job managing the interaction of those three return factors And that's as the funds are positioned dynamically, so they're constantly moving, and that requires a constant monitoring of individual fund risk exposures. And this is then further compounded when you try and blend them together. So the risk becomes that your exposures are contradictory or even compounded. So it actually becomes really difficult to ascertain where you're taking risk if you do this. With the core global bond approach, If you look at IA global mixed bond sector, it offers stability on average, but individually there's such a diverse range of funds in there and they all have really a range of benchmarks and different approaches. What this means is the return drivers one period might actually be laggards the next. And when you delve into the data and look at the performance, you get these huge divergences and that's basically depending what factors in favor at a particular point in time. What that means is choosing the right fund at the right time becomes extremely difficult. And this is essentially where we come in. So Marlborough Global Bond Fund was launched in 1987 and it was launched with conservative approach to bond fund management. And we use that same philosophy today. What we do is actually undertake the work of analysing the IA Global Mixed Bond Peer Group sector for the investor. We create a proxy for the median fund position. So we provide that steady return you would want from the average of that. And then we add on risk managed active positions to generate incremental return over time. How we're doing that is essentially building a highly diversified core portfolio of buy and maintain investment grade corporate bonds. And that's in order to manage idiosyncratic issuer risk given the asymmetric return profile of bonds. So it's quite a mouthful. Put it simply, bonds, when you buy them, 
you know the upside. So the risk you're taking is all the downside. To mitigate this, what we're doing is limiting individual exposures and we're buying basically a wide range of bonds across different geographies, high quality credit and duration by selecting securities from a filtered pool of well-researched names. This portfolio is then layered with liquid government bonds and that's in order to adjust duration and bond currency positions before then we layer FX forwards in order to actually adjust the currency position to our desired exposure. That's all taken within a conservative risk managed framework and we're obviously always taking into account this neutral peer group position. So our view overall is bonds are supposed to be boring. So we want to offer stability and diversification and offer an incremental return over time over and above that peer group average. So we want to build that up in time and put together basically a sleep easy at night package. That's clear. Thank you very much. It sounds an awful lot of work for just the two of you. I see you mentioned at the start that you work alongside Danny. What are the benefits of that approach rather than you know, when you compare that to some of the larger teams that you're competing with? Sure. So there's actually quite a lot of advantages with having a smaller team. First of all, we aren't really plagued with bureaucracy in making decisions. I mean, there's definitely a case of having too many cooks in the kitchen and you don't really want to have to assemble a small army to, to make any decisions. So we actually have quite a disciplined schedule of weekly meetings. But the fact that we're a small team allows us to work quite flexibly and we can adapt swiftly, basically without too much indecisiveness. We also actually benefit from interacting with the wider investment team where we can discuss ideas, compare notes on what's happening in markets on a regular basis. And ultimately, this allows us sort of a best of both approach. We've got that flexibility to react, but we've also got the resources and expertise behind us to actually deliver what we say we're going to do. And really, if you look at the track record of the fund, it really backs that up. Okay, thank you. So if we take a look now at how the fund's currently positioned, I believe in terms of duration, it's around neutral. Can you just take us through the thinking behind that, please? Sure. So we've been actually erring on the side of short duration over March of the last year. Really, as the question's been how high do rates go, given that central banks move towards data dependency. Now, the rationale for this was as curves have been inverted, there's been less of a benefit in going longer as term premiums not really been compensating investors for the additional risks in extended duration. I'll point out that we're taking quite modest positions. We're not really trying to be too clever as ultimately we want to provide investors with the stability I mentioned earlier. So our positions, we're not looking to shoot the lights out. They're all conservative and, and risk managed. So the current positioning, we've recently seen this shift where central banks look like they've reached the end of their hiking cycles. The questions switch now, not from how high do rates go, but to how long can they remain high? So in the last few weeks, we've actually seen what's been described as rate cut euphoria. It's clear to everyone that, that central banks have reached the end of their hiking cycles. But what isn't really clear is actually when central banks will cut rates. So we think that the market participants have got a bit ahead of themselves 
and there's been a bit of an overreaction. I'll stress again, we're not really trying to be too clever. We're not trying to time the market. So whilst eventually we'll be looking to move longer, we'll be wanting to do this gradually over time. And I presume you mentioned earlier that you take currency positions as well, and I presume they're smaller positions as well to reflect that conservative approach. But can you just give us a picture of how your position from a currency perspective? So we manage currency two ways. Firstly, through the currency of the bonds themselves, and then secondly, through an overlay of FX forwards to get our desired currency exposure. Currently, our positioning has been for weaker sterling, so we've stayed underweight there. Over the last year or so, we'd actually moved to what would be our maximum underweight sterling limit. That was mainly against the dollar, as we felt markets had moved too far. We then reduced this recently as sterling did weaken, so we, we took a bit of that position off, and that was before the more recent rally. So we still hold the view that risks for the UK economy are still prevalent, and the Bank of England is going to be forced to cut rates sooner. If we also throw into that mix that UK elections need to be held next year, we might also see a bit of political pressure on the Bank of England. So our view has been that, that the currency market was the best place to take this position instead of through gilt markets, given that there was a risk of sort of another mini-budget type reaction to the UK, where basically non-domestic investors could simply divest away from the market rather than going to the gilt market as a safe haven. So currently we're still positioned underweight sterling, but we've changed that from mostly against the dollar now to a more equal weighting between the dollar, the euro and the Japanese yen. And to be clear, you just position in major currencies only? That is correct, yes. We're only really taking conservative positions in the major markets. And just looking ahead, can you see us going back to that period of ultra-low interest rates? First of all, I'd say never say never. But unless we really see economic activity fall off a proverbial cliff, then I view it as quite an unlikely scenario over the next couple of years at least. So what we've seen post the COVID pandemic is essentially some anchoring to the last decade of this global financial crisis, lower for longer. And we've seen sort of a period where, where money was just thrown at markets. The pandemic really, as I've said earlier, sort of changed the playbook. It showed that inflation, you know, isn't defeated. It can come back. So we, we've essentially had a period where we've had more deglobalization as countries have looked more inwards for production, that's led to more trade fragmentation. When that's then combined with what will be a political unease to, to reduce support for economies, especially as we go through, I think there's about 40 different country elections in the next year. There's now a lot of inflationary factors at play, and we've also got sort of resilient wages. So inflation isn't gone. And what this means is that the natural interest rate which is the, the level that basically keeps inflation at the central bank target and also full economic employment, it's now higher than it has been. Plus, the view would be that central banks will want to keep some ammunition in the toolbox, so they only really want to cut rates in an emergency. So there's going to be a bit of hesitancy there to move to ultra-low interest rates, really. And what I would say is we're more looking at a return to a more historically normal period where our expectation would be 
rates remain higher for longer. Okay, that's clear. Thank you. And, and with that as the backdrop, what, what do you see as the market outlook? What sort of returns could we expect from bond markets over the next, say, six months or so? Yeah, I think what's fascinating at the moment is if you read all the outlooks out there for 2024, there's not really a, a consensus view. So what's evident from markets at the moment is a lot of optimism for rate cuts. I'm not really buying into this sort of what markets are pricing in at the moment. As you've really got to ask yourself, what incentive do central banks have to cut rates? With inflation above target and growth slowing, but it's, it's still remaining quite resilient. So I, I like to think of it in terms of anchoring. Uh, we've just come out of a period where central banks had initially stated inflation was transitory and they were slow to raise rates. So they won't want to prematurely cut as essentially that's their ammunition. You know, I've talked about ultra low rates for when an emergency scenario would appear. So central banks, they don't want to get rid of that. They've got an incentive to hold rates for as high as they can. And ultimately, this then raises the risk that something does in fact break. You've got sort of some investors describe this as a sort of boil the frog scenario. If things gradually turn bad, investors don't really see it. You've also got then on the other side, the investors themselves, who've got it wrong this year. So at the start of this year, there was calls for recessions that haven't really happened. So they've actually shifted now to being overly optimistic about soft landings. And our view is really, it's a risky move to try and be too clever. So some of the themes I would expect would be spread widening in the lower quality ends of credit markets. And that's as some pricing power is eroded with inflation cooling somewhat. We've also yet to really see the full extent of rate rises. If central banks continue to keep rates on hold, we might see more companies struggling. For this reason, I would say there's probably a bit too much optimism at the minute for a soft landing. In terms of what we'd be positioning for, we'd be looking to move gradually longer duration, as I mentioned earlier. We'd be retaining that sterling underweight. But ultimately, we're taking modest positions. We're not looking to be too clever. We're sort of wanting to offer this conservative risk-managed framework to provide investors a product that enables them to sleep easy at night. Nicely summarised. Thank you very much for your time, Niall. Thanks, Nick. That was Niall McDermott, who co-manages the Marlborough Global Bond Fund. And if you'd like to get more information, then please go to our website, marlboroughgroup.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.